your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. If you don't, do not worry. All the verses will be on the screen today. We just want you to know that we're not making this up, that this comes straight from the Word of God. And welcome to the 38th week or message, excuse me, of our Gospel of John series, a series that we are calling That You May Believe, because that's why John wrote this Gospel, so that we might believe in Jesus Christ. And I want to begin our time this morning with a very deep and a very theological question for you. Are you ready? Here it is. If life were a Winnie the Pooh episode, which character would you be? So think about that. If life were a Winnie the Pooh episode, which character would you be? Would you be Pooh Bear himself, the main character, friendly, loves to eat honey? I mean, that's a Baptist trait if I've ever seen one. Loves to eat. He's a bear of little brain, but very big heart. He is very loving of all. Are you Pooh Bear? Would you be Piglet, a Pooh's best friend, the anxious and timid little one who would always say, oh, oh, oh dear, 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 every time something came in his life, just anxious about everything? Would you be Tigger, the bouncy, flexible, always having fun, always happy character? Now, the problem with Tigger, of course, is Tigger was a regular nuisance who always disrupted the order of things, like always. Maybe you would be Rabbit. Now, Rabbit is the pushy one. He is the micromanager. He is suspicious of any strange thing, anything that's unfamiliar. He is the we've always done it this way type. You know, Rabbit thought he was the cleverest one in the woods, and of course, so did Owl. So maybe would you be Owl? You know, Owl thought he was the smartest of them all because he could spell the word Tuesday. Now, the problem was he was boring to anyone who would listen to him. No one liked to listen to him. Or maybe, just maybe, you would be the mopey, pessimistic Eeyore. I was about to say donkey, but I won't say that. Would you be, you know, we know Eeyore, he was the one that the cloud was always following right behind him. Life was always a downer. In one episode, Pooh says, good morning, Eeyore. And Eeyore said, good morning, Pooh. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. So that, that is how he lived his life. And here's a little deep theological truth for you. Did you know that the church is filled with Winnie the Pooh characters? We are filled with Winnie the Pooh characters. We have individuals that love all people and just have big hearts. And of course, in a Baptist church like Pooh, we love to eat. So that's one thought. We also have people that love to have fun and oftentimes disrupt the order of things. We have others who are pushy and think they know it all. Others are the downers and always negative? Do you recognize yourself in any of those? Do you recognize anyone else? You know, please don't point. That would just kind of be rude. So don't do that. But in the paragraph that we're about to read in Scripture, Jesus predicts a, an experience of deep sorrow for his disciples while at the same time predicting an overflowing joy that would come from that sorrow. So, in fact, the joy that Jesus promises will eclipse any sorrow that they would have to experience. And here's the deal. Here's what Jesus is about to say. My joy will mark your lives. 
Let me just say this. There are few things more attractive than a Christian who has authentic joy. I'm not talking about cheap joy, fake, artificial joy. I'm talking about real joy. Like the joy of the Lord is my strength kind of joy. Like the Psalm 91, restore to me the joy of your salvation kind of joy. On the other hand, please hear this. Those who are the pessimistic cynics, those who are always the negative ones, they are a poor advertisement of the gospel. There's nothing attractive in that. No unbeliever would look at the pessimistic person and say, I wish I was more like that. Nobody would say that. Yet there is an attraction to the joy that Jesus gives us. There's an attraction to that. So I want us to dive in this morning to this amazing paragraph where we hear the words of Jesus once again and we see the joy, we see the privilege, and we see the victory that is ours. So that's kind of where we're going today. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read John 16, verses 16 through 33 together, and then unpack this together. So beginning at verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourself? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the father. And that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, and I believe there had to be a little sarcasm here. Do you now believe? Like now, now you finally believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And hear the words of Jesus. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Jesus. We come before you as the overcomer. Holy Spirit, we come to you as the one who is sent in us, living in us. 
And Lord, we pray now that you would allow our eyes to see, our ears to hear, Lord, speak. Oh, God, move us, Lord. There's so much here, and I pray that we would see it. I pray that we would grasp it, that we would understand it, that we would respond rightly to it. Have your way, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. So this farewell discourse of Jesus that he's teaching his disciples right before his death is coming to an end. And just remember, this is a long conversation. It's not just a conversation, it's pastoral. Jesus is speaking to them as their shepherd. He's also preparing them for what's going to happen. It's like a general before an army goes to war. It's the final briefing that he is given or giving to them. Things are about to happen. Things that he's been warning them about for three years are about to happen. And he's trying to prepare them because he knows them. He knows their hearts. I read an article this week that addressed the overall disservice of the art community and their ongoing betrayal, or not betrayal, but portrayal of the disciples. Many paintings in the art community portray the disciples as they walk with Jesus as being older, sometimes balding, gray-headed, wise men, many times wearing big halos as if these guys had all the answers. When the truth is most of the time, these disciples didn't have a clue what was happening. They didn't have a clue what was going on. In fact, let me give you a sampling of a biblical portrait of the apostles or the disciples. In John 12, Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey. The people are putting palm branches down and their, their coats down and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And John tells us in John 12, the disciples did not understand what was happening. Later on in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And Thomas pipes up and he says, probably speaking for all the disciples, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Basically saying, Jesus, we don't get it. In Mark 9, right after the transfiguration of Christ and Jesus delivering a demon, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to be killed and in three days, I will rise from the dead. And you guessed it. The disciples had no idea what he was talking about. Jesus often told parables, these earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And many of those parables, after Jesus told the parables, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, those were, those were really cool stories. Like, those were awesome stories. But we have no idea what they meant. Like, what, what are you talking about? Jesus. So here, the disciples are confused once again. They don't get it. And I'm not trying to make a contrast between them and us because oftentimes we don't get it either. Oftentimes we don't get it. And I am so glad that it's recorded that they were confused and didn't get it because oftentimes we are in the same boat. Oftentimes, we can't understand why God does what he does, why God allows what he allows. We just don't get it. So I don't want to contrast them and us, but I will say this. Throughout the Gospel of John, John emphasizes some contrast that Jesus does place before his hearers. Jesus gives the contrast of death versus life. He gives the contrast of light versus darkness. He gives the contrast between his disciples and the world around him. He gives the contrast between something that is 
enjoyed temporarily as opposed to something that's enjoyed permanently. And then he contrasts joy and sorrow. And here's what I know. Most of us in this room, let me just speak for all of us. As long as we know where things are going in life and our plan is being followed, there's a confidence that is built into that, right? When things are going our way, we are walking in confidence. It's like, woo, yeah, things are great. The Lord is in control. Praise be to God. But when things aren't going the way we think they should go, or the way we planned them to go, when our expectations have not been met, confusion sets in. And hear this, confusion very often challenges our joy. Our confusion even steals our joy away. Where we're like, where did it go? I don't know where it went. It's just gone. So this morning what I want to do is there are so many truths I could have pulled out of of these verses, but I want to just take three that just rose to the top for me, and I want to just place these before you. So three truths I want to unpack. The first is this. There is joy for us in Jesus. There is joy for us in Jesus. Look at verses 20 and 22 on the screen. It says, Jesus says, truly, truly, you will weep and lament, speaking to the disciples, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So here's the deal. Things are about to get really, really bad for the 11 remaining disciples. Their world is about to fall apart. And Jesus says, while your hearts are being torn out of your chest, the world will be cheering, making your pain even worse. But Jesus says this, but that's not the end of the story. There is another chapter. Turn the page. Your sorrow will turn to joy. And listen, why does Jesus say this in his final hours? Why does he lay this before his disciples in his final hours? And I believe this. Hard things are less likely to rock our world if we know they're coming. Hard things are less likely to rock our world if we know they're coming. So Jesus is saying, listen, the world is going to rub salt in the wound of your sorrows at my death. Through the terrible sobs and your heart breaking, you're going to hear the scoffing voices of the world saying, He saved others, but He can't save Himself. If He is the Christ of God, come down. Yet Jesus is telling His disciples that is, this whole thing is part of your deliverance, it's part of your salvation. The disciples needed to know this. And knowing it didn't make them less inclined to be sorrowful, but it made them less vulnerable in their sorrow. So Jesus lays it before them. Just imagine their sorrow. Imagine the sorrow of the disciples at the loss of relationship with Jesus, at the humiliation of their Messiah, at the seeming victory of Jesus' enemies over him. And then their sorrow and that all they had hoped for has seemingly been taken away from them. And then Jesus says this, in the midst of all of that, I will turn your sorrow into joy. Now, please hear what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to take all your sorrow away. You'll never experience any more sorrow, and all you'll have is joy. 
No, Jesus says, you will have sorrow. You will have difficulty. You will experience pain. But I will turn, I will transform, I will change, I will convert that pain, that sorrow into joy. And please hear this, only he can do that. Only he can do that. Only he can take sorrow and turn that sorrow into joy in our hearts and lives. Do we know that joy? I read this week, someone said this, Joy is the flag flying high above the castle of the heart, announcing that the king is in residence there. Let me say it again. Joy is the flag flying high above the castle of the heart, announcing that the king is in residence there. Think of that. And think about what Jesus just said at the end of verse 22. Jesus said this, No one will take your joy, which is my joy, no one will take it from you. Don't miss this, brothers and sisters. The skeptics and the scoffers cannot take away your joy. The doctor with an unexpected health report cannot take away your joy. Those who betray you and hurt you deeply cannot take away your joy. The dire spiritual climate of the world that we live in, the political climate, national and global terror, financial disasters, unfulfilled dreams, and the haunting memories of our own failures, according to Jesus, cannot take away his joy in us. It can't do it. It cannot be taken away from us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, rest in him and rest in that. Now, if you're here today and you say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm not experiencing much joy, let me tell you why. Because you have gotten off the foundation of Jesus and you are putting your eyes on other things. And when you put your eyes on other things, you will not have his joy. But when you are resting in him, abiding in him, walking in him, you will have his joy no matter what comes your way. No matter what, rest in that. There is joy for us in Jesus. Do you understand that? Do you long for that? Do you want that? Do you have it? Number two, there is access to the Father through Jesus. There is access to the Father through Jesus. Look at verses 23 and 24. Get on the screen. Jesus says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. So why won't they ask anything of him? Because he won't be there. But then he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. That's a stunning promise to them and to us that we can go directly to God in the name of Jesus and we can ask for anything. His promise is that all of heaven's riches, all the divine purposes will be available to us if we ask in his name. But let me say this in parentheses, according to his will, according to his will. So Jesus is teaching them that they and us will have direct access to God. And I don't know if you know this, but in the ancient world, accessibility Accessibility to God by mankind was something that was unheard of. In all the religions, it was not even taught. Think about this. The Greeks, as you know, they believed in many, many gods and goddesses. And they had a belief system that there were gods in one realm and then humans were on earth. And it was their belief system that the gods were either jealous of mankind 
hostile towards mankind or indifferent towards mankind. And in one of their stories, remember Greek mythology, so please understand that mythology, but in one of their stories, there was a God named Prometheus who took pity on mankind and gave them the gift of fire because he was generous. Yet when Zeus found out about it, that Prometheus had dared to stoop to the level of helping mankind, Zeus commanded that Prometheus be taken to a rock in the Adriatic Sea, bound by chains, and then Zeus commanded that vultures tear out his liver. So the idea in the mind of the Greeks that you could go to God or that God would ever come to you was unheard of. Even in Judaism, there was no access to God on a personal level. You had to go through a priest. Even the temple contained reminders that man was separated from God. There were walls and courtyards. On one of the walls in the Jerusalem temple was a sign that read this, Death to any Gentile who passes this point. Now, can you imagine if you walked in the day and on the doors of the church said, if you're a northerner and you walk into the building, we'll kill you. I mean, just imagine that. But this is separation that's going on. But here's what we know. We know that in the temple, there was a four-inch veil that separated the holy place from the most holy. And no one could go beyond that veil except the high priest and only one time a year. Yet, when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, we are told that that veil was ripped not from bottom to the top as if man did it, but from top to bottom because God did it. And in doing so, brothers and sisters, we have access to God through Jesus. We are able to pray to him. So when we realize the love that God has for us through all that he did for us, we come to love Jesus and we believe in him and we put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And Jesus comes to live in us through his spirit and we are able to abide in him. And through that, we are given special access or special privilege in which we are able to pray to God the Father. Just follow with me here. How, how is it that we pray to the Father in Jesus' name? And here's the picture. The only reason, brothers and sisters, that we are able to pray to God is through the crucifixion, through the cross of Jesus Christ. Meaning, don't ever, ever, ever think small thoughts concerning prayer. Don't ever act like prayer is insignificant. Prayer is a privilege that costs Jesus his life. And that's the only reason we are able to go to God the Father. Don't miss it. Over and over again in Scripture, we read the phrase, in his name, in Jesus' name, or in my name. We know that demons were cast out in the name of Jesus. Healing occurred in the name of Jesus. Salvation came in the name of Jesus. In fact, Acts 4 says, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus only. The only one who can save us. We are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And we are to pray in his name. So Jesus has invited us. He has urged us. And hear this. Jesus has commanded us to pray in his name. And he promises incredible results. Now what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Let me give you six things, and these aren't in the notes, so just follow with me here. When we pray in Jesus' name, number one, we are admitting the bankruptcy of our own name. 
meaning there is no power in your name. There is no power in my name. Without Christ, our names have no power and no privilege. Listen, when an FBI agent comes and pounds on the door, he doesn't pound and then say, open up, this is Carl. No, Carl has no power. There's no power in the name of Carl. No, he says, open up, FBI. Apart from the authority of the FBI, Carl has no power. His name is just empty. And it's the same thing from, with us. Apart from Jesus Christ, we have no standing to enter the courts of God. Our name isn't enough, but his name is. His name is. Secondly, when we pray in his name, we identify with the person of Christ. So we identify with Jesus. Jesus has literally given us his name. So when I use the name of Jesus, I am saying he is mine and I am his. He is mine. I am his. Number three, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying in his authority. So to pray in Jesus' name is to pray based on his authority, based on his power, based on his revealed will in his word. And anytime we pray in the authority of Jesus, it is also accompanied with the provision of Jesus. We pray in his power and he will give us all things that we are in need of. Fourth, When we pray in Jesus' name, we submit to his will. Let me be very, very clear here. The only way you and I will ever or should ever expect to receive what we ask for is if we pray in accordance with the will of God. We aren't praying our own prayers for our own stuff. We are praying his prayers. So when we say in Jesus' name, what we are praying is we are praying for what Jesus would ask for if he was praying. And praise be to God, he is praying. But we are praying for what he would ask for. The reason that we don't often get what we ask for is that we aren't praying in accordance with his will. Remember, prayer is not about getting your will done in heaven. Prayer is about getting God's will done on earth. Therefore, we pray for that. Number five, when we use his name, we are representing him and his interest on the earth. Literally, Jesus has given us the power of attorney. We have power of attorney. We can use his name. And we ask according to his will. Never our own. And then this, when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray expectantly. Why? Because he hears and he answers us. He hears and he answers us. If you don't believe that, I want to encourage you today to go go talk to Larry and Faith. There's been something they've been praying for for many, 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 many years. We've been praying along with them for many, many years. And it has been a struggle. And it has been discouraging. And there have been moments. It's like, God, please, what are you doing? And praise be to God, in his perfect timing, this Friday, we got the answer. We got the answer. And Larry called. My first thing was, oh, no, something happened. Because Larry doesn't normally call me at 10 o'clock. Uh, on, a, on a Friday. So I answered, I'm like bracing for bad news. Like I didn't know what was happening. And he said, guess what? And I could tell in his voice, it wasn't bad news. So I began to rejoice and we prayed together and we rejoiced in the fact that God hears our prayers. Amen. He might not answer according to our timetable, but he will answer and he will make all things beautiful in its time. That's the beauty of the God that we serve. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be Now, let me stop and say this. Jesus just said, if you ask, you receive, and your joy may be full. Maybe, just maybe, 
There are so many Christians who are miserable and have no joy because they don't know what it means to pray and have God answer. Maybe, just maybe, we are so joyless because we are so prayerless. Maybe, just maybe, we have no joy in our lives because we have no prayer in our lives. We don't know what it means to keep asking, to keep seeking, and to keep knocking. George Mueller said this, Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but rather laying hold of God's willingness. What he said is this, when we come to God in prayer, we are not prying God's hand open to receive from him what we won't know. We come to God and God's hand is already open to us because we're his. We come to him and his hand's already open to us. God is saying, you don't have to pry it out of my hand because I want to give it to you. I want to give it to you because that's how I treat my children. Oh, to God that we would understand the joy that answered prayer brings and reflecting on what heaven will be like Dwight L. Moody said this next to the wonder of seeing Jesus I will I think it will be the wonder that I made so little use of prayer that will consume my heart besides seeing Jesus he said it might just be the wonder that I I prayed so little that might consume me in that moment may we understand the privilege that we have May we ask, may we seek, may we knock, and may we know the joy, the complete and full joy that comes when we as his children ask and he answers. Because he answers. He answers. There is access to the Father through Jesus. And then lastly, number three, there is victory now and forever in Jesus. Let me say it again, and I hope I can get more than just one amen here. There is victory both now and forever in Jesus. There's victory in him. But follow with me here. In verse 32, Jesus says, and you see on the screen, Behold, the hour is coming when you, the disciples, will be scattered each to his own home. Now, that doesn't sound like victory. That sounds like defeat. Jesus predicts the failure of the disciples. At, their, at his arrest, they would scatter. The disciples had just said, Jesus, we believe. Like, we get it. We believe. And Jesus is basically saying, well, your belief isn't enough to keep you from falling. And brothers and sisters, listen, we will fall as well. You and I will fall. Our belief, listen, yes, we have belief in a perfect God and a perfect Savior. But let me make it very clear. Our belief is imperfect. Our belief is imperfect because we are human. Therefore, we will stumble. We will fall. We will fail. And here's the beauty of it all. I love this because Jesus wasn't surprised by their failure. In fact, he said it, you will fail. Has there ever been a time in your life where you surprised yourself with something you did? I can think of so many times I look back and go, like, how in the world? Like, I can't believe I was so stupid to do that or say that. How in the world? There have been times where I have surprised myself with things I've done. But I have never surprised Jesus. I've never surprised him. We must learn how to deal with failure. Let me give you a historical example. I want to tell you about a man who... Failed, got back up. Failed, got back up. Failed, got back up again and again and again and again. He was a businessman who failed in business in 1831. He was defeated for legislator in 1832. He tried and failed with another business in 1833. 
He was elected finally to the legislature in 1834. His fiancée died in 1835. He had a nervous breakdown in 1836. He was defeated for the Speaker of the House in 1838. In 1843, he ran for Congress and was defeated. He was eventually elected to Congress in 1846, but was then, two years later, defeated in 1848. He tried running for Senate in 1850, and he lost. In 1856, he ran for Vice President and was defeated. In 1858, he ran again for the Senate and was defeated. But in 1860, he was elected as the 16th president of the United States. Who was it? Thank God y'all got it right. I thought y'all were going to say George Washington. So thank, thank you for getting that right. But he failed, got back up, failed, got back up again and again and again. And what Jesus is telling us is that not only can we get back up, we can have a deep sense of peace and hear this and still have victory. And still have victory. Listen to what Jesus says. The end of verse 32. You will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. And then hear these words again. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, you will have tribulation in this world. Don't be surprised. I speak peace in the middle of it. Take heart. I've overcome the world. Jesus came to conquer. He came to overcome. That's exactly what he did. Just after saying these words, Jesus went to the cross. He died for your sin and my sin. And according to the Bible, he disarmed all the rulers and authorities of this world. He disarmed them, meaning they have no weapons. They are not armed anymore. Jesus has taken the the sting out of death and sin. According to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus overcame by rising from the dead. He is now at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent his spirit to live in his own, as Jesus promised in John 14, John 15, John 16. My spirit is coming to you. I'm going to dwell in you. Don't miss it. The resurrected, overcoming King of kings, Lord of lords, dwells in us. His spirit resides in us, meaning that no matter what is going on in your life today, no matter what you are facing, no matter what trial or tribulation surrounds us, we do not have to walk with our heads down in defeat. Don't think for a second that you have been defeated even in failure. Even in failure, we have the overcoming, conquering, king of all, living inside of us. We belong to him. Therefore, hear me, lift up your head. Lift up your heads. Lift them up. He is our help and our strength. He is our forgiveness and our restoration. He is our joy and our peace. Lift up your eyes and look to him. He is our victory and he is the one who has overcome and he will help us to overcome the sin that continually tempts us. He will help us overcome the struggle that we're walking through right now. He will help us overcome every trial and tribulation that we are facing because he is with us. Listen, if you're a child of God today and you feel like the rails are coming off, like the rails are coming off, like you're facing difficult things and you don't know how to face them. And you're wondering, God, how could you even allow this to happen in my life? Remember the words of Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, in this world, you will have no problems. 
in this world, you will never face difficulty. That's not what Jesus says. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have difficulty. You will have pain. You will have sorrow. You will have all of these things. But you will also have my joy. You will also have my peace. And you will also have my victory. We'll have his victory. Brothers and sisters, there are two lessons from this last verse, John 16, 33. First is this, count on trouble. Count on trouble. Trouble will come into your life and trouble will come into my life. There is trouble that is waiting for us, for all of us. Trouble is coming. We shouldn't be shocked or surprised when trouble comes in our lives. Even the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4, 12 says, don't be surprised when fiery trials come as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter says, listen, it's not strange for difficulty to happen to a believer. It's not strange for trials to come into our lives. So count on trouble. But then the second lesson is this. Take courage. Or in the words of Jesus here, take heart in his victory. Take heart, not in our powers, not in our abilities. Take heart in the finished work of Jesus. And when Jesus says, take courage, or when Jesus says, take heart, hear this, it was a command. Jesus is commanding us to take courage in him, take heart in him. And here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus says this, every time the phrase take heart or take courage is mentioned in the New Testament, it is coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Every time. There's not any other person in the New Testament that says this, take heart or take courage. It's always Jesus. So I want to end with this. If the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in control of everything, says to us, take courage or take heart, we have every reason to do just that. Why? Because he has overcome the world. He has overcome the world. He has overcome it all. And that might not be good news for us today. We might feel like, well, that's him. Let me tell you this. Because Jesus has overcome, we are able to overcome. In fact, let me end with a verse today. It's in 1 John 5. So later on, the Apostle John would write these words in 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5. And it's on the screen. Listen to what he says. For everyone who has been born of God. So if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God, child of God everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But what faith? Faith in faith? Faith in ourselves? No. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Our faith in Jesus allows us to overcome. Oh, to God that we would live in that, that we would live with the joy that he gives to us. Oh, to God that we would live in the access that he has provided to us, that we can pray to the Father knowing that the Father will hear us and will answer us. And that we would live in the victory. Even in defeat, brothers and sisters, there is forgiveness for us. Even in defeat, even when sin enters our lives, there is forgiveness. And Jesus is able to undo what sin does. And he is able to work it all for good and for his glory. Oh, don't we want that? Don't we want to see his joy in our lives? Don't we want to see answered prayer and joy complete and full in our lives, don't we want to see his victory? Oh, that we would abide in him. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand, and we're going to call the band forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let's pray as they come. Jesus, we come to you, the one who has overcome. 
And as the overcoming one, Jesus, you have overcame everything that we could not overcome. You've overcome sin. You've overcome the world. You've overcome the devil. You've overcome death and the grave. And because of you, we can have victory. Not in ourselves, but in you. Lord, give us joy today in Jesus. Jesus, give us your joy. May we know it, Lord. May we experience it. May we show it. May others see it and desire it, Lord. Lord, help us to see that joy complete as we come to you through Jesus in the Spirit, asking you, Father, to do things in accordance with your will and seeing you answer prayer. Increase our joy in that way, Lord, and give us the victory, Jesus, that is yours. Give us the knowledge, again, that, Jesus, you know our failures. You know our faults. You know all the things that we're going to do, and yet, Jesus, you say, you're loved. I know. There's victory. There's victory there. There's peace there. There's joy there. There's forgiveness there. God, help us to grab a hold of what is ours, not because we pry it out of your hands, but because your hands are open to us. And I pray for anyone today, under the sound of my voice, who doesn't know you, that today would be a day of desire. Today Today would be a day, Lord, of turning to you as Savior and Lord, turning away from themselves, turning away from their sin and turning to you, Jesus, and you will save now.